Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, the federal government introduced its Religious Discrimination Bill to Parliament. It's the third draft of new laws to cover various aspects of religious freedom, sparked by lobbying from some conservative religious groups following the legalisation of same-sex marriage back in 2017. And while laws against discrimination sound like a good thing, there are concerns among human rights advocates that the bill could exacerbate discrimination, particularly as regards members of the LGBTQ plus community. Associate Professor Luke Beck is an expert in constitutional law at Monash University and to explain the ins and outs of this bill as it currently stands, he joins us on the line. Uh, Luke, great to have you back on Triple R. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And so remind us how we got here and why there's another version of the religious discrimination bill in federal parliament. Yeah, so as you said in your intro, um, this all goes back to the 2017 marriage equality debate. And so conservative religious groups who who were and actually remain quite upset about marriage equality coming into existence in Australia were promised effectively a consolation prize by the coalition government. And ultimately, this religious discrimination bill is that consolation prize. There are some good bits in the bill, but there are also some really complex and quite nasty bits in the bill as well. Yeah, and uh, uh, um, it was introduced last Thursday, and um, as far as I understand, it's not yet widely debated. What, where, where is it destined to go? Like, what happens to it now that it's been uh, introduced into Parliament, Luke? Yeah, so the process now that the Prime Minister's introduced it into the lower house is that it looks like it's going to be sent off to a joint committee of senators and MPs for an inquiry, which will report back sometime in February next year, and then it will come on for discussion and debate perhaps, unless we have an election in the meantime that sort of kills it off before they get a chance to vote on it. Yeah, and and so walk us through what's different about this latest version of the bill. So the bill is effectively in two parts. The first part of the bill is effectively a stock standard anti-discrimination law that protects people from being discriminated against on the ground of their religion or lack of religion. That's not controversial. And in fact, that sort of uh, covers what's already the effect of state law in all states and territories other than South Australia and New South Wales, where religious discrimination is already unlawful. So that bit's not uncontroversial. Protecting people from discrimination, that's uh, that's not controversial. Basically, everybody agrees with that. It's the second part of the bill that's super controversial, and that's stuff that's not a shield to protect people. It's effectively a sword that gives people a license to do things to other people. And there's two particularly controversial bits. And the main one is what's called the Statement of Beliefs provision. Now, they've got this provision in the bill that overrides every other anti-discrimination law in the country. So that's the Federal Racial Discrimination Act, the Sex Discrimination Act, etc., and then all of the state and territory anti-discrimination acts, and says that religious people can make statements of belief that contravene all these anti-discrimination laws as long as, uh, provided that they genuinely believe what they're saying and it doesn't rise to the level of harassment or inciting uh, a criminal offence. And so, you know, 
that part of the bill winds back existing anti-discrimination and human rights protections to give a licence effectively to be nasty. And so as you said in your introduction, it will be um, uh, gay people who are principally on the receiving end of this, but equally Christians will be on the receiving end of this, just as it will be lawful under this bill to be nasty to a gay person at work. It will be equally uh, lawful to be nasty to a Christian person at work. And the government hasn't really explained why it's necessary to wind back uh, existing human rights and discrimination protections, uh, but that's what they're proposing. And it is really complicated, and I think we'll get into more detail, but, I mean, just a broad question first. How does this bill propose to sort of, well, I say play together, but, you know, work together with the the uh, other anti-discrimination laws we have in place? How What, what trumps what here, Luke? Yeah, so this is the really... This is one of the controversial things about the religious discrimination bill. Generally speaking, discrimination laws are meant to work side by side together with each other. So the Federal Race Discrimination Act, for example, does not override uh, state race discrimination protections. They work side by side to protect people. This bill is different. It overrides every other anti-discrimination law in the country. So it overrides all the state and territory laws, and it even overrides the other federal laws. This religious discrimination bill, for example, overrides the Federal Sex Discrimination Act, and it overrides the Federal Racial Discrimination Act. So it winds back or overrides existing protections people have under federal and state uh, human rights laws. And so that's a really controversial aspect of the bill because that's not how federal anti-discrimination laws ordinarily work. And as I said before, the federal government hasn't really explained why they want to take away protections under the Racial Discrimination Act or under any of these other laws, but that's what they're proposing. That's, um, I mean, that's bizarre, Luke. It sounds really messy and, and like, I mean, the Victorian government has said that they're not ruling out a high court challenge to this if it does override state-based anti-discrimination laws. Do you imagine, you know, there'd be fairly significant resistance to that provision in particular? Yeah, so this is where uh, equality advocates, human rights advocates, as well as state uh, governments have been quite vocal. They don't want existing protections overridden. So all of those groups, state governments, uh, the gay and lesbian equality advocates, they all support protecting people from discrimination based on religion. But what they don't want uh, is the overriding or taking away of other protections for other people. These things can work side by side. And of course, there are also religious groups uh, who are opposed to overriding other human rights protections. The other day, the Uniting Church of Australia released a statement opposing the bill in its current form, effectively saying that uh, the right to be protected from religious discrimination is very important, but there's no need to override other anti-discrimination protections and take away rights from other people. Associate Professor Luke Beck's with us, constitutional law expert over at Monash. And we're speaking about the federal government's revised religious discrimination bill, which was introduced by the Prime Minister last Thursday into Parliament. It looks like it's destined to go to a um, joint committee in the Senate. Uh, And I guess, Luke, I I wanted to raise with you, uh, you know, I've, I've read widely on this now and previous research has shown that public debates around these kinds of rights and this kind of, um, these sorts of bills and and proposed laws can be detrimental just in the discussion of it because it it raises, we're talking about people's lives here and about protections for people based on really um, important um, questions of of individual identity and a whole range of different things. Um, What's your thoughts there about the the way this debate is, is proceeding now and the harm that can come from these kinds of debates, which we saw happen during the marriage equality um, discussions a few years ago as well. 
Yeah, well, certainly that's a that's a major concern, and sort of one of the ideas underlying this religious discrimination bill is that being nasty to gay people is something that we need to debate and that we need to think about passing special laws to give people the right to be mean and nasty to gay people. Effectively, that's what the statement of belief provision uh, is all about. And so, you know, the idea that that's something that that we need to have a public discussion and debate about, the idea that we should take away rights from gay people that have been hard fought and only recently won, I mean, of course that's uh, troubling and concerning uh, for people, members of the LGBTIQ community. And uh, no wonder that for some people, particularly those who have various traumas related to that, mm. uh, that's quite um, harmful. Yeah, and so, the, you know, there's these broader sort of social ramifications that, that can come from debating this once again, and there's the, the legal issues which you've outlined as well and how this, you know, overrides and comes into conflict with other anti-discrimination legislation federally and at the state level. Is there an actual issue here that, that does need to be resolved at all with regard to religious discrimination, Luke? Yeah, well, so this is the really interesting thing. Back when we had the marriage equality uh, legislation in late 2017, you might remember the Ruddock Religious Freedom Review that was called after that, and it was, you know, sort of stacked with people who looked a little bit conservative, and everybody was worried that they were going to come up with all sorts of recommendations that would be harmful to the LGBTI community. And that's not what happened. The Ruddock Review came back and said, Australia does not have a religious freedom problem. And... That was quite upsetting for conservative religious groups because they were hoping that they would get recommendations that would allow, that would encourage all sorts of uh, laws that would uh, give a license to discriminate against gay people in a much more extreme version than what we've got in this religious discrimination bill. So that independent inquiry uh, found that Australia does not have a religious discrimination problem. So what is the problem that this bill is intended to solve? On the one hand, there is a gap in federal anti-discrimination law. We have a race sex, age and uh, disability discrimination act. So it makes sense, I suppose, to have a federal religious discrimination act uh, just to add into that full suite of anti-discrimination protections. But noting, of course, that religious discrimination is already unlawful at a state level, so people are protected against religious discrimination already. That's fine, but why do we need this statement of belief provision? Why do we need to override all of the other anti-discrimination protections to give people a license to be nasty to to other people at work, to to give people a license to ignore anti-discrimination laws? There's there's been no real explanation as to what problem that is is intended to solve. And really, it's not about, at least in my view, it's not about any real, tangible, real-world problems. This is a symbolic, cultural thing. This is a one of those culture war things. And so uh, quite conservative religious groups, which is not all religious groups, but the conservative religious groups uh, want some kind of symbolic statement from government that says, yes, guys, you are still important and influential in society, which for them is really important because you might have, you might know that, you know, those groups have lost a lot of social debates in recent times. We've had abortion legalised in New South Wales, we've got voluntary assisted dying laws uh, popping up around the country, we've got marriage equality now, sort of those social conservative Christian views of the world and how the world should operate, um, that no longer represents mainstream Australian community thinking. And so those groups you know, want some kind of statement that says, yes, guys, you're still special. Well, I mean, in, in your experience, is that how constitutional law works, um, Luke, that, you know, if you lose a few debates, you should win a, a few others? I mean, look, well, look, that's been facetious, but I wonder what, what, what is a good outcome here in your view um, with, the, with, the, with the backing of your, your studies in law? What, 
what should happen with this bill? What would be a, a good outcome for it? So a good way forward would be for this parliamentary inquiry to, to listen to all of the concerned stakeholders from all sides of the debate and then come back with recommendations to amend the bill so that it does provide proper protection against religious discrimination but goes no further. It gets, so in other words, what should really happen in my view is that you take out all of these nasty licenses to discriminate against other people provisions and just leave in place a stock standard anti-discrimination law. That would protect people of faith, of course people who don't have a faith, uh, but wouldn't override or wind back existing human rights protections for other people. I think that would be a good way forward. That is a situation in which everybody wins. Sounds pretty reasonable to me. It's been um, so great having your insights and helping us understand um, a little bit more about this bill as, as it currently is. Luke, really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Luke Beck there, Associate Professor in Constitutional Law over at Monash University, talking about this third iteration of the Religious Discrimination Bill, which is before Parliament. Um, It may be going before a Senate inquiry. We'll kind of wait and see what happens and and whether this gets resolved before an election as well is another question entirely. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Climate activists are being particularly targeted by a whole host of laws and policing approaches aimed at repressing their activities. This is according to a new report written by authors from the Human Rights Law Centre, Greenpeace and the Environment Defenders Office. Yusuf Yusa Al-Azawi is a senior lawyer, lawyer at Human Rights Law Centre and, she, and she's co-author of the report which is called Global Warning, the Threat to Climate Defenders in Australia. And uh, Yusa is on the phone and it's great to have you there. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Ah, no, it's great. Um, so what led you, um, you said, to investigate the treatment, treatment of climate activists in Australia and, and have a look at some of the laws and, and law enforcement practices that are currently being used? Well, I think we started to notice that um, it really wasn't just one or two isolated incidents that climate activists were facing. And the further we looked into it, um, the more we saw that there's really an increasing trend of repressive tactics um, being used against climate activists and that here in Australia it seemed to be a picture of a sort of... um, death by a thousand cuts when it comes to activism. So we wanted to take a bit of a deeper look at that and stitch it all together um, to be able to trace the sort of trends that was happening and the pattern that we were seeing. And, and to do that, is that sort of give an indication of why you, you teamed up with Greenpeace and the Environmental Defenders Office on this report? Yeah, so the report actually came from um, the UN Special Rapporteur a little while ago into the Freedom of Association, made a call for submissions Mm. um, on the state of climate activism, um, you know, in various countries. And we sort of banded together and decided to take a look at this in response to the Special Rapporteur's call for submissions. Um, And as we started looking into it and putting it together, we we thought that there was something really worthwhile to... um, put out and turn into a report to sort of be able to demonstrate this to to everyone here, you know, not just send it off to the UN. So that's sort of how it came about and how we teamed up with Greenpeace and the Environmental Defenders Office on this. And so what, um, I guess it's useful to say, what makes something climate activism versus some other sort of activism? Uh, the motivation, really. Um, so, you know, protest is um, critical for all of us. Um, you know, it's it's 
part of how we make our voices heard and, and make the things, you know, we care about known in society. Um, and climate activists are, um, you know, doing, doing just specifically that for the environment, really. There's nothing in particular that sets it apart. It's, it's, um, it's part of how we come together to speak about what we care about. And the report talks about a, a systemic targeting of climate activists. Talk to us about what you mean by that, in, in what way it's systemic and, and what counts towards that broader picture, I suppose, in, in how climate activists have been targeted. Yeah, well, I think at a time when the stakes couldn't be higher, um, we're seeing this increasing targeting, you know, prosecution, intimidation and harassment of climate defenders just because they're calling for action. And what we've found, um, you know, like I've said, is that it's not just a uh, coincidence or one or two isolated things. It's broad scale, um, the way that these this sort of attack is, is unfolding. Um, and we've seen, for example, the introduction of harsh and sometimes unconstitutional anti-protest laws. We've seen the enforcement of punitive bail conditions and excessive penalties for activists that do get charged for their activism. We've seen activists targeted with litigation. We've even seen spying. Um, on groups of climate defenders. And then, uh, sort of from a different angle, we've seen the stifling of civil society by defunding climate education and threatening to deregister charities who engage in climate activism. Yeah, look, there's a whole range there. And actually, we've covered some of these issues over the years, um, and particularly with, with regards, as you mentioned there, the sort of charity laws. That Some of them, I mean, that, that absolutely has been targeted. It's not always successful, though. But what is the... what 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 environment, um, not talking about the uh, trees and, and grass type of environment, but what sort of um, sort of litigation environment or, or protest environment does it create when governments are going after things like the, the charity status of an environmental organisation if their activists are actually involved with, with direct action or various other kinds of climate action? I think what it means is that people are increasingly scared to exercise their democratic right to sort of speak out about the things they care about. And not only does it impact that person who is out there protesting, but it also has a flow-on, you know, really chilling effect for society and for our ability to exercise our right to protest. There were some revelations from the ABC's 7.30 over the past week. And, uh, I mean, you mentioned before that there, there you know, has been, been cases of climate defenders being, uh, you know, subject to surveillance and, and that sort of thing. And in that story, uh, it, it you know, emerged that Vic Forests had engaged in some kind of physical and digital surveillance of someone involved in forest conservation. How common is that kind of behaviour, that there's actual surveillance and, and, you know, people being followed around when they're involved in some form of climate activism? Unfortunately, it's more common than we would like to see. Um, there are sort of, I think, increasing instances of this, particularly when it comes to corporations. Um, and now we have new technologies at hand, like facial recognition technology and access to big data and metadata um, that sort of increases the ways that this can happen. But to give you a bit of an example of something that's happened before, 
A few years ago, back in 2014, um, there was a climate activist camp that was in um, near Malls Creek, uh, which is in New South Wales, and the climate activists there, known as uh, Frontline Action on Coal, had been there protesting for three years against the expansion of a coal mine um, by a mining giant, Itametsu. Um And it was uncovered later that for five months there were former intelligence and military personnel that had taken on assumed identities with really elaborate backstories. And they then rotated through the camp, taking notes, reporting back on any planned actions and profiling the camp's leadership. So the undercover operatives were then discovered and linked to a number of intelligence companies. Um, and including to that investigative report, I think, um, the intelligence was provided to the mining giant, who then later admitted that it had contracted intelligence organisations. Um, but it did deny knowledge of the sort of practices that we used to obtain the information. So that's just sort of one example of the types of things that are happening. Um, and we've also seen, you know, corporations like Bravis um, engage law firms to set up strategies to bankrupt individuals and wind up organisations um, who unsuccessfully challenge, you know, Bravis in court and to sort of use um, social media to discredit activists to oppose their operations. I mean, the, the, some of the, the um, activities there that you list are, are, are really... Um like sound sound extreme um extreme um to go to but i wonder with regards to how widespread that is i mean you know is it is it likely that this is happening um in in many instances or are we seeing that this is happening in in certain instances i think what the 730 report story brought home is that we've seen a government agency now use similar tactics to this and, you know, previously I had seen it in the corporate space, like the couple of examples I've just given. But given the unregulated environment that technologies like facial recognition and metadata are currently operating in, you know, I think we're all at risk. We're speaking with Yusuf Al-Azawi, Senior Lawyer at Human Rights Law Centre, all about a new report they've put out collaborating with Greenpeace and Environmental Defenders Office into the suppression of climate defenders um, by Australian governments. Another thing that the report touches on is the use of strategic lawsuits against public participation, um, or SLAPS um, is the acronym. What are they and, and how do they suppress climate activism? And I suppose how readily are they used to discourage people from engaging in in these kinds of activities? So strategic lawsuits against public participation are legal actions. They're brought against particular groups or people really to silence them by burdening them with the cost of litigation. It costs a huge amount of money to go to court. Not everyone has access to lawyers um, and the funds that, you know, they need to defend a court action. Not all slaps, as they're called, are necessarily frivolous or vexatious, which is sort of a legal, um, legal term that suggests they have no proper basis. That's not necessarily the case. They might have a valid cause of action to go to court, but they're taken with the intent of restricting public participation as opposed to, say, protecting a legitimate interest. 
The corporations have used slaps in Australia to silence environmental activists, um, such as, for example, the Tasmania logging company Guns, which filed a $6.3 million lawsuit against environmental, uh, environmentalists who oppose its logging operations. And we've seen it uh, right throughout Australia's history. And most recently, actually, um, right before we started preparing this report, uh, Greenpeace, who are one of the co-authors, published a separate investigative report um, launching a campaign into uh, AGL to call them out as Australia's biggest climate polluter. Um, and I think as part of that, Greenpeace published parodies of AGL's advertisements with the headline claim, still Australia's biggest polluter, that sort of thing. Um, and just to sort of show the disparity between how the company was advertising um, and the impact it was really having on the environment, AGL then sued Greenpeace, demanding that the... Um, they remove any identifying AGL logos from the campaign um, and it argued that the sort of uh, logo parodies that Greenpeace had used infringed, you know, copyright and trademark. Um, and so cases like this really weaponise intellectual property rights, for example, in an attempt to suppress speech and stifle criticism. And I think ultimately um, AGL was unsuccessful in that claim and it was ordered to pay a substantial portion of Greenpeace's legal costs. Mm. But until you get to that point, um, you've incurred a huge amount of legal costs potentially um, that might deter someone from who was considering perhaps speaking up against a, a corporation like AGL from doing anything at all. Yeah, and I mean, your report really does highlight several instances of, of this. So if people are, you know, it, it's really important to have a read and, and see some of the history here. But I mean, climate litigation is big in Australia. I understand it's, uh, we're only really second to the US with regards to it. And there has been some recent wins by climate activists and students um, themselves. Is there a fl flip side here too that, that the kind of litigation approach can be beneficial with regards to um, compelling governments to care for the environment or to um, to do, you know, raise ambition when it comes to climate action, um, Yusa? Yeah, that's, um, that's right. So recently um, we have seen the Federal Environment Minister um, in court has been found to owe young people a duty of care um, to avoid causing harm from the impending impacts of climate change. Um, and that came about as the result of some incredible young climate activists coming together um, and suing. Um, and that was a really sort of a landmark decision that was based on science. It was a real turning point here in Australia for environmental litigation. Um, however, having said that, that decision has now been appealed by the minister, and I think that um, we're still awaiting the outcome of that appeal. And in the process, uh, I mean, I've spoken to the lead applicant of that claim, an incredible activist called Anjali Sharma. You know, and she speaks of the huge um, sort of burden and cost and uncertainties and fear that come along with going along to court and suing the government. 
Yeah, and um, as I was reading your report, I was thinking about the you know protests we've seen in Melbourne in recent times, and how freedom assembly of assembly as as a right, I suppose, has been restricted for for obvious reasons during the pandemic to prevent you know spread of of COVID nineteen. But do you imagine there are any additional concerns stemming from our experience of the pandemic and and what we've seen around protests and so on that that might impact climate activism going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people have a right to be heard, but as we've seen through the pandemic, public health can justify some restrictions on protests. And we have seen protests take place recently that have had dangerous elements to them and have been justifiably shut down, I think. Um, But laws exist to hold people accountable who engage in violent and criminal behaviour. But I think targeting those who speak up with surveillance, you know, specifically harsh penalties excessive policing, the sorts of things that climate activists are facing, it's repressive and it has a deterrent effect on the exercise of political rights for all of us. Thanks, you. So it's been um, really good to have you on Triple R and uh, the the report, if you want to go find it, is called Global Warning, the Threat to Climate Defenders in Australia. Um, you says a co-author uh, together with authors from Greenpeace and the Environment Defenders Office. And uh, you, sir, Al Azawi is a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. Um, uh, um, no doubt we'll speak to you again, you, sir. Triple R. So it was just a couple of weeks ago that Apple made the announcement that it would provide spare parts to enable some of its devices to be mended by customers. Uh, this is the thing that um, one of the things that right to repair advocates have been calling for for many years, and it's been welcomed by many as a watershed moment. Although it has also been noted that it will uh, help the company head off legislation and other government interventions in the US that might have forced this to happen anyway. Um, nevertheless, it is like progress and to talk more about it we asked Karen Ellis from Mender Australia to come back on Triple R and have a chat to us about it and Karen it's great to have you there hello thank you Dylan thank you Claudia we're uh, happy to uh, be back on um, sharing all about repair and the right to repair thanks yeah. for inviting us yeah we enjoyed talking with you last time and it seems like this is progress hey that um, Apple has said it will start to make repair kits available to customers even if only initially for the latest models I mean what what, what are your thoughts on it well from a right to perspective Right to repair perspective, it is very good news and many are singing its praises because what it does is it virtually says that Apple is backing down on its statements related to repair not being safe and repair um, having security issues with their phones. So to go and do this, they're backing down on that now. So for right to repair campaigners who have been saying it's quite safe to repair your phones, there's no security issues. Um, Yeah, it's, it's good news. However, however, uh, there are some that are a little bit sceptical as to what's really being offered. And and why is that, Karen? Where does some of that scepticism come from? Well, the scepticism comes from the actual repairers themselves. So it's about self-repair. So it's 
Apple is virtually saying, you know, anyone out there, well, not quite, but anyone out there can now have access to this, these spare parts and manuals for the iPhone 12 and iPhone 13 and I believe the MacBook computer. And that's all very well if you're highly skilled to be able to do that. But a lot of ordinary folk out there won't be fixing their phones. It's just not as easy as that. Uh, Danny, um, the co-founder of uh, Mended Australia, has been fixing recently an iPhone 8. That's as high as he's got. And that was quite doable because there were no uh, sort of security issues with the phone. And he could get into it and repair it. But it was difficult. We've got that on video, him talking about that and just how it's not easy. Not everybody out there is going to be able to even fix an iPhone 6, 7, 8. And so, I mean, I I suppose to dig dig into that a little bit more, it's well and good to have the repair kits available, I think, for purchase, so spare parts available and a manual and things like that. But if the phone's built in a certain way that makes it really difficult for your average customer or even a handy customer to be able to fix it, then it's, you know, what of what value is it? Is, is that sort of an open question uh, still, Karen, do you think? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, spot on there. Well said. Uh, that's that's exactly right. What what value is it going to be? People are thinking, oh, great. You know, I'll be able to, I'll be able to fix my iPhone 12. I'll, I'll get the spare parts. I'll get the manual. Uh, it's it's just not that easy. These these devices are really very tricky to to fix. And the screws. I mean, on an iPhone 8, Danny had 30 screws, tiny little screws that you can hardly see, and all different types of screws. It's it's just it's just a nightmare. There's glue, <laughs> things are glued in, and it's it's go, going to be. Uh, so I think it's it's um, it's just not it's smoke and mirrors. Yeah, <laughs> it's smoke and mirrors, and we're being indulged a little bit by Apple. Well, I suppose in in some ways it's inevitable that that some highly complex uh, devices and so on, you know, are going to be quite difficult to repair because they've they've emerged and, and evolved over quite a, a long period of time. And I guess it's a positive that people can at least potentially be empowered to to have a go at it um, for those who are a bit more savvy with that sort of stuff. But do you imagine that this announcement from Apple will put pressure on other companies to provide? Um, materials and and, and tools and and that sort of thing to repair things that perhaps are, you know, a little bit more accessible? Dylan, just getting back to that empowerment, definitely. That is something that is really important for the right to repair movement. If you really do buy your iPhone 12, your iPhone 13, and you're just an ordinary Joe out there that really just wants to tinker and have a go and has never done it before, you own it, you should be able to get spare parts and manuals and have a go at it. So uh, I wanted to say that uh, Right to Repairers feel that it's very important for people to be able to fix the stuff they own, not to be dictated to by the OEMs. And in regards to
to the other thing you mentioned. Uh, what was that? I forget. I just had to go back to the empowerment part. Did, yeah, just whether you, you think that this move from Apple will put pressure on other companies to, to you know, provide uh, materials and, and tools to, to fix things, um, you know, going forward. Yes, look, definitely. Microsoft has already uh, beat Apple to the post. Uh, They have uh, um, succumbed to their shareholders and have uh, started to offer up um, uh, some of their information. I'm not au fait with exactly what they've offered, but that's happened. Apple is starting to succumb to the legislators, the FTC over in the US and shareholders. So it's uh, there's a move and it's, it's, uh, it's going to happen. I think Dell have already uh, come on board. There's other companies as well. Yes, and not just uh, computerised, the computer companies either. Good. Yeah, yeah good. and you know, it's interesting, isn't it, Karen, because I think if you had a vehicle that you you were driving and you couldn't actually take it to even a specialist um to to get fixed that wasn't you know part of part of the 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 named brand company um people would be up in arms particularly if you're in a regional area where you might not have every single car maker with a with a workshop there is this sort of the direction that we might go in now with regards to our um, devices that we, even if we can't fix it ourselves, the spare cut part kit is available to somebody on the main strip who might be able to do it for us, which which has been a little bit out of reach for, for a lot of the devices until now, hopefully. Yes, well, uh, that's, that's true. Apple already offer third-party uh, repair. They've got third-party uh, repair uh, people uh, that have passed their um, courses. Uh, independent repairers, if uh, they sign up to some special program, can have access to uh, Apple uh, uh, parts. Um, so it's happening. And with, with the cars, yes, of course, uh, there's uh, there's... There has been legislation, right to repair legislation passed in July this year that, uh, and the first for Australia, that uh, the um, Automotive Spare Parts Association that, that um, has uh, lobbied very hard for, for a decade to get third-party repairers, uh, automobile repairers, access to uh, the, the OEM's information. So that's 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 happening too so yes there's there's a groundswell it's uh it's happening but it usually takes a long time 10 years for for the automotive association spare parts association to be able to get right to repair legislation through in australia so yeah takes a while. Yeah. Karen Ellis is our guest. Um, she's one of the, the co-founders of Mendit Australia and also is on the uh, steering committee of Repair Australia as well. We're talking about a decision from Apple to sell parts and tools for DIY iPhone repairs and also the broader right to repair movement in general. And we, we've heard a, a bit um, sort of, you know, in more sort of mainstream news, I suppose, around repair cafes and this movement springing up in, in areas all around Australia and, and internationally as well. How has that gone with different sort of lockdowns being imposed in particular states? I imagine if people are spending a lot of time around the home, they might, you know, have time on their hands to to have a go at at fixing something. But have you noticed any uptick at all in in people's interest in uh, right to repair and, and also that broader repair cafe movement that's emerged? Yes, Dylan. Well, uh, there's oh, about 
2,200 repair cafes. That's just repair cafes. There's other sort of fix-it um, clinics and mend-it operations across the world, but Repair Cafes is registered from the Netherlands and a lot of people join up to that because it's um, a movement, it's sort of organised uh, from there and they pay to, to join. And, well, there's 2,200, as I said, in Australia, Repair Cafes, we're looking at about 60 of them. However, it all slowed down during the pandemic. Um, when I say slowed down, they, they weren't operating and people weren't uh, establishing repair cafes. However, many were still online posting uh, information about repairing. They were offering um, repair online. Uh, a little bit difficult. We did some of that. We did six of those, but it is very difficult to repair online and uh, when you're not there in person. However, we did try. Uh, and over the well, good decade that uh, Danny and myself have been involved as Mended uh, Australia. This uh, movement is, again, a groundswell. It's, it's taking off. More and more people want to repair things. There's tool libraries starting to pop up everywhere. People are wanting to uh, not buy stuff. They're wanting to share stuff. So it's, uh, it's looking good for repair. I was speaking to the uh, federal government, uh, Trevor Evans' department, a couple of days ago, and they're extremely interested in the bigger picture repair, community repair movement for Australia. How can we scale up repair at the local level? So Danny and I had uh, quite a few initiatives there. We wanted to discuss... With them, that's quite exciting. Uh, the, the Scottish government is also scaling up with community repair. Uh, that's come out of COP26, and uh, yeah, so they're they're wanting to actually provide funding. So it's uh, it's good. It's good news for for repair. So get repairing, everyone, <laughs> and get re get repairing. It's it's where it's happening. Recycling, sort of, it's important, but it's not as popular. It's not the poster child anymore. More reuse and repair is starting to uh, take over. Yeah, and I, I understand since we spoke to you last, uh, Karen, we're almost out of time, but I, I understand that Repair Australia has, has um, not only you know been born but also you know up and running um, since we, we spoke to you. Just quickly, uh, what, what's the role of that organisation that you're on the steering committee for? Yes, well, that's the peak body for repair in Australia and it's uh, early days. It's from uh, Griffith Uni in Queensland and it's uh, going to be doing some great stuff representing um, all sorts of repair interests across Australia. So keep an eye out for that. If you want to know more, please send a message to Mended Australia on Facebook and I can send you the links. Fantastic. Mender Australia is where Karen Ellis is from. And Karen, it's really great to get your thoughts. And um, we're going to watch this space when it comes to Apple. And look, let's, um, let's see how far it goes. And let's see if, um, if anyone other than uh, um, Denny Ellis is going to be able to fix one of these phones. Thanks, heaps. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm sure they will. Daddy's uh, a senior, so if he can do it, there's a lot of young ones out there that will be able to give it a go. Well, right. I can watch his videos online yeah. and, and learn a thing or two for sure. The challenge is out there. Thanks heaps. We'll speak to you again. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.